Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Tuesday Home Time coming up in about 30 seconds time with Jan Bartlett. And today we'll be speaking with Dr Margie Beavis who's been on the radioactive tour around mostly South Australia and maybe a bit of Northern Territory looking at the sites where they've had uranium mining and bombs in the past. Also Dr Tim Anderson's visit to Timor-Leste, Toxic Free Faulkner have got a, a time at the at VCAT this end of this month and um, they're looking for funds to fund that so we're going to talk to Sue Bolton about that and a, a concert that's not a concert, a film that's coming up this Thursday afternoon or evening to support the move to VCAT. Also a report on the situation in Palestine with Tam Nins, who's a Palestine Community of Victoria member and alarming news coming out of Western Sahara with activist Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and finally Zimbabwe has Mugabe relinquished power or is he hanging on there in the background I'll be speaking with activist and trade unionist Peter Murphy but first we can't do it without Mr Kevin Healy A week Jay listener when I'm feeling just a bit insecure no no let's be honest very very insecure after the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect Julie bash up the workers declared she would destroy our protection our security throw US of the UN of the US of the world train killers good liberty freedom and democracy love and train killers the good guys who stand proudly bravely between us and train killer disaster air raids bombs cruel heartless murderous train killers bursting into our homes chemical warfare from bad bad train killers the bad guys throw us of train killers bases out of true and close important protections like pine gap that critical piece of us of soil devoted to world peace reclaim the piece of land thereby threatening the peace across the globe for julie firmly declared true was opposed to any country any country establishing train killer bases in other countries in the Asia-Pacific region. How can the Pacific be Pacific if we throw our great protector out? Yet, that's what Julie said. We oppose any country establishing military bases in the Asia-Pacific. And the socialist would-be minister for going overseas, etc., Penny Rong, said she agrees with Julie. Throw the US of out. And she has a Chinese background, so she must know how evil capitalist China is. And she says, keep China out as well. Just when we face terrifying real threats of chemical warfare from evil Russia and evil China and evil Syria, the evil government, not the good, good Syrians we support, forcing U.S.R. big supremo Donald Trump or the poor to fight for peace, 
send in the bombs and the train killer arsenal, send in the marines, something the US of just loathes but knows is the price of being the good guy of the good guys. And Donald attacked his predecessor for telegraphing bombings and other peacekeeping assaults forced on the US of, and then last week Donald telegraphed by twit bombings and other peacekeeping assaults. And then being the great commander-in-chief, and we're sure no one would have mentioned, uh, maybe that was a mistake, Donald, who wants to hear, you're fired, after Donald tweeted, maybe the US of would and maybe the US of wouldn't, showing what a brilliant military-trained killer strategist the commander-in-chief is, comparable with the great tactician Winston Churchill others at Gallipoli. And then the maybe he would bit came true with support from Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and France. And at least Julie said True Blue Aussie would obey or, oh sorry, sorry, support any bombings and other peacekeeping assaults as long as they were proportional. She didn't say to what. And big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said True Blue Aussie would join the good guys bombing the proverbial out of if only they would ask us. Because Syria poses an obvious threat to peace in True Blue Aussie and the US of would know who had chemical weapons because its merchants of death have the receipts similar to mission accomplished in then evil Iraq 15 years ago with just a little bit of mopping up ever since that mission accomplished being getting rid of the weapons of mass destruction and nuclear warheads the US of equally unequivocally knew were there and prevented evil Iraq invading the whole good guys world because they too asked the obvious question where's all that stuff we sold them. And this mission accomplished, good, good, was Donald saying, mission accomplished, good, good. Although no one had the slightest idea what he meant, but that's normal. And the latest version of the Coalition of the Killing said the next step after bombing evil Syria for dropping chemical weapons was for the international authority to investigate whether they had dropped chemical weapons or if chemical weapons had been dropped, whether evil Syria had dropped them because the US of and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and France and True Blue Aussie for that matter hate war crimes. And while on train killers, True Blue Aussie announced a new big train killer, Angus Dumbbell, appointed despite Malcolm saying it needed an intelligent person. Angus fondly remembered as the train killer agent, a former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses and then minister for concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, scuttle them more less sons, sink the boats policy, who answered every question with, I can't answer that question using security reasons as an excuse for the possibility that he didn't have a clue. Although it assumed desperate refugees forced to take to the high seas posed a security threat to True Blue Aussie, presumably using their fragile boats as weapons by ramming them into the coastline. And our insecurity compounded by the threat of power blackouts for our ultra-expensive electricity, as goody-goodies who think the planet should come before profit want to take good, good, clean coal from the energy mix. As the Minister for Monash Fossils, don't knock the Monash Fossils. They determine our energy policy. The Minister for Monash Fossils, Josh Friedem Icebergs, who knows profit will save the planet, seeks a balance, attacking zealots. 
the extreme ideologues on both sides of the energy debate. So unless people are proposing we re-nationalise the system and put the bill... Hang on, hang on, we need a short break here just to think that one through. Okay, anyway, unless lower prices, higher reliability and lower emissions cannot be achieved through the lens of ideology, but rather through markets operating effectively. Good point, because there's nothing even remotely ideological about believing in the market. All it takes is a, a massive leap of faith. Like, even more exciting, Josh guaranteed his national fossil energy guarantee will guarantee coal will be in the mix until at least 2070, or until the end of human existence, whichever comes first. And to Frankie's bona fides, Josh called on the big non-ideological market forces energy behemoths to lower their prices. Please, please, please. Back to poor Donald forced to attack that probe into alleged Russian interference in getting him elected as an attack on our country, a witch hunt, bad, bad. After the probe raided Donald's lawyer's office, a good man, good man, good, leading to revised speculation Donald might give the investigator the you're fired bit, but we bet there wouldn't be one person in remand who wouldn't wish she or he could just sack her, his investigator, thereby declaring not guilty. This week, Donald threatened to fire former FBI Supremo James Comey in the ashes until an aide reminded him he already had. After Comey in the ashes made a number of nasty allegations while flogging his book, including suggesting poor Donald was morally unfit to be Big Supremo. Although in fairness to Donald, we must disagree with that because we can't think of one depravity that would constitute being morally unfit for office as U.S. of Big Supremo. Well, correction, other than declaring capitalism illegal and establishing a socialist state devoted to the people and not the corporations, but there's not a lot of chance of Donald heading in that direction. Yet we must admire Donald's constrained and rational response to combing the ashes' envious attacks, arguing logically, by twit, his attacker was one, a slime bag, Two, slippery. Three, should be put in jail. Four, the worst FBI director in history by far. Why would anyone attack such a reasonable man? But, like that slippery slime bag, how cruel some people can be to poor Donald. Take John Vidiello, real name, president of the U.S. of National Fire Sprinkler Association. They must have an association for everything. Anyway, after that fire which killed a resident in Trample the Paws Tower, John claimed, and who would believe this listener, claimed Donald in the 1990s had lobbied officials not to require sprinklers because they were too expensive. And Donald, the businessman, doing his best to generate jobs and growth for the common good, would have known all that expense would have saved but a handful of lives. Back here, periodic redistribution of parliamentary seats, and it's proposed to change Karangamite, one of the few seats with an indigenous title, to Cox, C-O-X, named after some woman who did good establishment deeds or other, and see the current caring business class party member for Karangamite plans to object, saying she doesn't wish to be known as the member for Cox. She must have a filthy mind. 
The proposed redistribution led to speculation that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, will change his position, his seat, leading to some confusion. Until I realised they meant parliamentary seat, as I thought, what's new? He's always changing his position based on the message he gets from licking his finger and holding it up in the air. Speaking of out of control, which we were earlier, as speculation whirls about Malcolm, the one argument for keeping him there to continue doing nothing while boasting about jobs and growth, jobs and growth, is the risk he might be replaced by the current Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats and our security, Constable Peter Duffer. Not that we've got anything against Pete, but what would the rest of the world think when they see that vacuous skull? He's their uh, bigger supremo? Finally, totally unrelated, the University of Melbourne has joined those bodies testing autonomous buses which roar along with no one driving. And I thought, must be attached to the politics department because obviously it's a microcosm of government. Except the buses hopefully aren't roaring along aimlessly. Good afternoon. You could only be listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. That was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. And you can hear Kevin tomorrow between 9 and 10 for a little bit of a different slant on things with City Limits. The participants in the 2018 Radio Active Exposure Tour have reached home base. After a 10-day journey through the heart of Australia's nuclear landscape, The tours have been conducted for decades, but this year's was the first in almost three years and has exposed thousands of people over those years to the realities of radioactive waste and nuclear bomb tests. One of the participants this year was the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Margie Beavis. So this month our talk, Margie, it's about you and the team and what you experienced over those 10 days. Was this your first radioactive tour? Yes, it was my first time, and um, it was very impressive for the organisers. We um, took my hats off to the organisers who did a great job. How many on the tour? 26. And did they all come from Melbourne, or were they picked people up on the way? No, we picked up probably about eight people in Adelaide. We met also with some Aboriginal representatives in Adelaide, which was one of the really excellent things about this tour is it's sort of educational as well as actually seeing these places. You meet with people who are in these places fighting and the impacts of the nuclear chain on individuals and their communities. And so we, we met the very fortunate Kevin Buzzacott and Vivian McKenzie came and talked to us in Adelaide. Kevin, who was one of the original crew who set up the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance about 20 years ago, talked to us about, you know, the struggle they had in Cooper Pedy in Northern Territory, they have the issues they have with mining. Well, Vivian talked to us about the plans to put a nuclear waste dump on Adnumatya lands on the southern end of the Flinders Ranges. And you went there? Yes, that was another part of our trip. It's, we were really lucky. We swam in the, there's a, on the block of land that's proposed for the um, waste facility, there is a really beautiful sort of oasis of the Hookner Springs, which I'd seen in pictures and I thought was very pretty, but actually to go there and swim there was really, I was very uh, surprised how beautiful it was to have this lovely green oasis in the middle of really desert country. And such a terrible shame to be, it was just unthinkable to put a waste site there. And similarly, the rest of the 
that site, we didn't actually get out further, but there's a huge amount of Aboriginal artefacts apparently just on the surface. And one thing they did take us to see was they showed us what a um, floodplain this area is too. They took us to see some trees, enormous trees that had been uprooted in the 1950s in two floods where the Hookner had flooded. And this site not only is unsuitable in terms of the Aboriginal heritage and the beautiful springs, it's also really unsuitable in terms of being sort of seismically active and a really a, a quite a unsuitable floodplain. So it, it sort of doesn't make sense on a whole lot of levels. You met with the, the traditional people there? Yes, we met with Tony and Regina McKenzie and um, Vivian McKenzie again. They came to Melbourne a while ago? They came to Melbourne a while ago when this dump was first proposed in their area. For, for a long time they were the only site that was being looked at. Now there's, in fact, four other sites. There's two in Kimber. There's actually two other, uh, not actual sites, but two councils. There's Brewarina Council in western New South Wales, northern western New South Wales, which is sniffing around these waste dumps. And there's also talks at Leonora, a council in Leonora in West Australia, also talking about um, getting information. What's, what's really astounding, actually, is how inaccurate the information the government is providing these communities. Again, I mean, this nuclear medicine excuse that they keep using to pressure on pressure communities is exactly the same wrong information that we protested about for the Hawker and the Kimber communities they're now trotting out to the Brewarina communities and I'm quite confident they won't change their information for the Leonora communities. So not only not only is this process continuing to happen, it's a terrible divisive process. I mean it sets sets families against each other. It's made lifelong friends not talking to each other. In Kimber it's meant that a lot of the out of town wheat growers are sort of very against the dump, whereas the townsfolk who think it may be good for business are for it. So it's communities in so many ways and it's so divisive and damaging. So not only is that continuing to go on, but they don't even, they're not even presenting honest information, which is really, it's sort of like, how can they be this stupid, really? What's the area in or around Kimber that they're talking about? Um, there's two sites out of Kimber. They narrowed down the area. When, when they surveyed in Kimber, the local people to see whether they were happy to keep going with the process they deliberately excluded some people who are closer to the waste dump. They only surveyed a sort of town area, the town council area, rather than including some of the people further out who, in fact, are closer to the to the waste facility than some of the other people who are given a vote. So they, the government is also, when it starts talking about community consent, it's also not necessarily taking a representative vote, which is sort of distorting the, the outcome. And, in fact, that vote, I think the government would have been very disappointed. They got 57% people interested in continuing the process which means that 43% of the community, even when they take a skewed sample, are opposed to this dump. So it's definitely splitting the community. In your opinion, is the dump necessary at all? Actually, I think we do need a, a really world-class nuclear waste facility because this stuff is dangerous. But what they're proposing, they, they keep talking to communities about low-level waste. The real skin in the game for this is the intermediate-level waste. The intermediate-level waste is more than 90% of the radioactivity, and it needs to be kept safe from the waterways and from the environment for between 10,000 and 100,000 years, which is, I mean, when you think that the pharaohs were only 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years is a huge amount of time. And the, the, the proposal from the government at this stage is just to put it in the shed and say it can sit there for 100 years and then we'll move it. Now, that's just kicking the can down the road. I'm sorry, but it's not a world's best practice 
strongly believe that there needs to be a, a, a formal inquiry into nuclear waste management in Australia. And more than that, we also are very disturbed by the proposal to massively increase the amount of intermediate level nuclear waste that ANSTO makes in Sydney. There is no... Nowhere in the world have they worked out how to dispose of this intermediate level waste. It's so long lived, it's so toxic. And ANSTO are proposing to massively increase their production and that's one of the reasons why they're putting so much pressure on to get this waste dumped. So we, we think in the long run, yes, we need one. We need it to be at world's best practice standard. We don't need a cheap and nasty facility that's imposed on communities just because ANSTO wants to improve its export markets. What do you mean by ANSTO producing more? Well, ANSTO, which people may know, runs the Lucas Heights reactor in Sydney at a suburb called Lucas Heights. For many years, Australia for nuclear medicine has made... I mean, the nuclear, I should say the Lucas Heights reactor is used for many things. It's not just nuclear medicine. The majority of its work is around scientific research and various sort of irradiating silicon chips and various other purposes. And all of these could be done overseas, as could nuclear medicine production. However, we have, a nuclear, we have a nuclear reactor and that has for many years made 1% of the world's nuclear medicine and that, yeah, that's okay. But there's a proposal to increase the production of nuclear medicine to, to export to 25 or 30 times that amount and that will markedly increase intermediate level waste from the production of that nuclear medicine and that's just fallacy, it's just crazy because that would leave it with a whole lot of nuclear waste from other countries' health systems. What's also sort of crazy about it is not only is it, will it leave us all this waste that we don't know what to do with, but also when the OECD and the Nuclear Energy Agency sat down and looked at production of nuclear medicine and factored in all the costs, such as insurance and waste disposal, they found that when you sell this stuff, you only get back about 10 15% of what it actually truly costs to produce. So not only are we leaving ourselves with a whole lot of nuclear waste we don't know what to do with and which will last 10,000 to 100,000 years and is highly toxic. We're also doing that at the expense of the Australian health system and it's just, it's, it's really all about ANSTO wanting to build up its own manufacturing and its own importance and I think that's something that needs to be significantly reviewed. So as I said, we're very keen for there to be a proper review of nuclear waste management but also nuclear waste production because the first principle in any production of toxic waste, the very first principle in production of toxic waste is to reduce production, to, to, to stop producing it if you can. And there are alternatives. That's the other thing. The government is not looking into cyclotrons, which are currently being commercially licensed in Canada and the United Kingdom are looking into cyclotrons and they produce much, much, much less. So it's empire waste. building. Yep, it's all about empire building. Back to the tour. On to Back to Ara- the tour. Sorry, you got me no, out of No, no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> On to Arabana country. Yes, we went up to Woomera and visited Avon Hudson, who's a long-standing nuclear whistleblower and key person in the Veteran Test Survivors Group, discussed the history of weapons testing. We were really privileged to have him there because he was such a source of enormous oral history. He took us around the missile park and discussed the various weaponry that Australia's tried over the decades on behalf of the UK usually, but also a little bit for America. One of the saddest, saddest and most striking parts of the trip was visiting the Woomera Cemetery where there are so many dead babies sort of stillborn and very young and these dead children seem to be much more around the two phases of atomic testing so sort of mid 
to late 50s when they were doing the nuclear bomb atmospheric tests and then in early 60s when they were doing the highly toxic plutonium, what they call the minor trials, even though they weren't minor at all. That weren't actually bombs because they were working in contravention of treaties, but sort of there was clusters in this cemetery. Now, it hasn't been analysed, but you looked at this cemetery and you thought, now these are just the babies of the white people who you could afford headstones, and I'm sure they're all tragic, but to think of all the Aboriginal babies that potentially also died without their headstones. And also for every baby that was born, there's likely to have been many, many miscarriages due to this sort of fallout from these tests. So it was, it was really, really sad to actually visit the Woodward Cemetery because it's really sort of like a signpost of, of damage that's been done and damage that's ongoing to these communities. Can you talk a bit more about the whistleblower and what happened to him when he did blow the whistle? I actually don't know that the history is that properly. I know that he was, he was, when he asked some questions, he was soon put out of the Air Force where he was working. And I think he's had a lifetime of people vilifying him, but I don't actually know the details. I, I'm sorry, he, he didn't actually talk about the impacts for him. He really just talked about the impacts for other test survivors and for the Aboriginal people. Did you go um, to the Olympic Dam area? Yes, we went and visited Roxby Downs, got toured around on a bus, and to BHP's credit, they did take us on. But what was depressing was how the people who took us on the tour clearly had been given wrong information about, you know, they, they said that there was no exemptions for BHP of the Indenture Act, as people would probably know that BHP has got massive exemptions for the Olympic Dam mine. So it's exempt from the Aboriginal Heritage Act, it's exempt from the Environment Protection Act, it's exempt from various water regulations. And, and one of the things that this Olympic Dam take, it has the permits to take up, 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 to, up to 42 million litres a day out of the Great Artesian Basin, so and it takes between sort of 34 and 41,000 million litres, 41 billion litres a day. So it's taking huge amounts of water out of the Great Artesian Basin. And they, the people who are giving us the tour said, "Oh no, they didn't have any exemptions. They were they were subject to the law like everybody else." Well, it's actually not true. And there were various other things they told us that we thought were actually factually incorrect. Did you pick them up on that? Yeah, we did, but that didn't. I mean, they they've been told one thing. We know other stuff so it's very um there's only a certain amount of you can say you know they can say this and we say well actually that's not true so we did there's huge ore piles currently there olympic dam they're testing heat bleaching which is a very nasty chemical process using to purify the waste and they're testing that in adelaide because bhp feels this will be a much cheaper way to get the ore the the um, minerals out of the ore body but we're We'll wait and see what happens with that, but it was disconcerting to see these huge piles of ore just piled up on the on the ground. Did you go to the Mound Springs? Yeah, I was just going to get to that. We went to the Mound Springs, um, and Glenn Wingfield, who um, talked to us about the history of Kokatha resistance to the mine, um, we met with him, and he took us to the Mound Springs and told us stories. And the Mound Springs are significantly lower than they were 20 to 30 years ago. When we talked to the, the people at BHP, they said that BHP had paid farmers to cap off bores and that the amount of water these farmers closed bores was exactly equal to the amount of water that BHP was pulling out of the ground. And I'm sorry, but there would be an awful lot of farmers' bores if you want to get up to sort of around 40 million litres a day of water. That just didn't, that beggars belief, really. But it's a finite resource, isn't it? It is, and it's so huge. I mean, certainly the water theft in the upper reaches of the Darling Basin, you know, the Cubby Station and all those, the Queensland farming water corruption, really, 
also will impact on the Great Artesian Basin, but there's no question that the BHP taking that much water out every day, it is a finite resource and, and they're, as I said, they're exempt from the regulation of the Water Act, the Environment Protection Act, so it's very dispiriting to see that much water going into a, an industry that we have major issues with. Where to next? After that, we went to Lake Eyre, which was fantastic. We just a really beautiful part of the country. The sunrise and sunset over Lake Eyre was wonderful. And then we went back down to Wilpina Pound in the Flinders Ranges, and there we, again, we got to talk to some ICANN because we were really lucky. We had Tim Wright, um, Ray Atchison from Wilp from New York, uh, Dimity Hawkins um, and Jess from ICANN, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and we also had the Australian medal from the Nobel Peace Prize. So we took it to particularly the <laughs> Aboriginal people who suffered with these testings and showed them the Nobel Peace Prize. And they were pretty chuffed to see to actually be able to hold the medal in their hand and, and see that. And so we had some good talks from them about the process, sort of what, how they've got to this point of actually winning, getting the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons and also what lies ahead. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, with Peter Pound, we met up again, as I said, with Vivian McKenzie, Tony, Tony and Regina McKenzie. And then we, just on the way home, we met up in Corn, which is a township south of where the dump is proposed near Hawker, and met up with the Flinders Local Action Group and discussed the impact that that, the huge impact this process has had on that community. And, uh, we were sorry not to meet up with the Kimber crew, but they, unfortunately when we were going through their area, it was Easter and a lot of them were away, so that didn't happen. Just finally, Margie, talk about the logistics of the tour of taking so many people into often desert areas. Well, they, the organisers were very impressive. We had two minibuses and two four-wheel drive cars, and they, we would sort of tend to travel in convoys so that um, there would be one bus, one car, just so that if anyone, anything broke down or there was a problem. And one thing that impressed me as a GP that was they were very strict on hand hygiene, which was great. I mean, we had a three-stage process. You had to wash your hands and you had to rinse your hands and you had to use sanitizer, and it was very... And the catering was fantastic. We had a wonderful pair of people who very sweetly... Haley and Benji, they, they produced really delicious vegan food for the whole 10 days. And I'm not a vegan, but I really enjoyed it. I think some people found that a lot of people had, didn't know a lot of the information, and certainly I learned a lot. And some people found it really confronting. I think there were, there were a few people by the end of the tour who were really sort of a bit shell-shocked about how much has happened in the past and, and the ongoing sort of nuclear racism, if you like, and all the proposals and the... And the yeah, I think, I, think, I think there will be people who sort of have a deeper understanding of, of what we're up against and how we need to take action and bear witness to what's happening and make sure to hold the government to account because if you don't hold the government to account, they'll just run roughshod over. And all ages represented? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lots of younger people, but certainly a few oldies like me. We had some, a couple of people with their ukuleles who would sing along at times. And it was, no, no, it was a lovely time. It was really a, really a fun tour. I, I actually enjoyed it much more than I expected. What was the first thing you did when you got home? Have a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd say that. Yeah, clean is nice. <laughs> Thanks, Margie. Okay, thank you. And that's Dr Margie Beavis, who's now the Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, talking about the 10-day radioactive tour. Two parts of, many parts of South Australia and up in, I think they're in the Northern Territory, I'm not quite sure if they got up that far, looking at the, the t- toxic dump sites proposals, looking at where the tests were carried out and where, I believe, some of the 
uranium is still being mined in places like Roxby Down. That's Margie Beavers from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio You got it right, you've won a giraffe uh, We're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And don't forget if you miss any of your favourite programs over the week, you can always stream on your computer all the programs streamed for at least a week and then move over to the next week. So that's one way not to miss out on programs on 3CR or you can have your favourite programs or just one program, whatever you like, sent to your computer with a podcast. And how to do that, you get onto the 3CR webpage at 3cr.org.au. This Thursday evening, the chance to see an important film from New Zealand regarding a long battle by sawmill workers to expose the impact that workplace toxins had on their community and the clean-up of the site. And it's a fundraiser for a local community addressing similar issues in Faulkner, Northern Melbourne, Toxic Free Faulkner. At the weekend, I spoke with City of Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. Sue, this campaign by the community to get the toxic site in McBride Street cleaned up has now reached, or will reach, VCAT on the 30th of April through to the 3rd of May. What's the expectation about those four days? Well, the VCAT hearing starts on the 30th of April. It'll be a four-day hearing. We hope that development on this toxic site gets rejected, but we also realise that we're not going to really get what we need out of the VCAT process. The VCAT process is a very limited kind of process. It's highly likely that what will happen is that VCAT will approve development on this site with some conditions and the conditions might be a new environmental audit which we definitely do want but we're also worried about the conditions of you know what sort of audit you know how well things are policed and supervised on the site because we really don't have any trust or confidence in the authorities given what's happened to this site over so long and then the other fact is that this development application is only on one half of the original toxic site. So the toxic site was sold off in the 70s and at some point it was divided into two titles. So now two different owners own different halves of the toxic site. So this development application is only on one half of the original toxic site and we really want the entire 
site, an entire original site, cleaned up. Now, the EPA has the power, we believe, to order a site to be cleaned up, regardless of whether there's a development application on it or not. But it appears that EPA very rarely uses that power because they're worried about being sued by landowners and they're worried about being seen as exaggerating the level of risk. But from the community's point of view, we want the entire site cleaned up and probably never built on so that we know that the community will be safe into the future. What is on that second site at the moment? It's a warehouse for $2 shops. It was an illegal construction. Both halves of the original site have had illegal construction on them without penalty, we believe. So at the moment, you know, I mean, there's still a clay cap on the site. When that illegal construction happened, it would have, you know, it would have released some toxins into the air, definitely. I'm not sure when that construction happened on the site where there's no development application. When you say there's a cap... That's stopping or should be stopping the toxins getting into the air. But what's happening under the cap? Where, does they, where do they go to from there? Well, that's a very good question. And the clay cap is also not up to today's standards of clay caps. It was never intended to be a permanent cap. It was only a temporary cap. Underneath that clay cap, they did pull out a lot of contaminated soil, but they could only take out contaminated soil down to the rock and it's a fractured rock system underneath so it means that you know contaminated soil and water trickle down between rocks and depending on where you test you might put a test test probe here and find no contamination and a meter away put down a test probe and find sky high contamination so there's definitely contamination still down there but we also fearful, we believe that the contamination has gone off-site to the area behind the site and there's some evidence of that with some dead grass which has been dead grass ever since the original audit which was mentioned in the original audit. And that contamination is still down there basically. On top of that is what they call clean fill but clean fill isn't necessarily what the layperson might think clean soil clean fill is rubble from various building sites etc but you know sometimes it's not clean sometimes it's got a lot of contaminants in it itself sometimes can include asbestos and so forth what we do know is that whenever the clay cap has been breached with illegal construction work on the site that we're in vcat over the contaminants have come out of the ground and the whole the original pungent odour has definitely come out and when that illegal construction work happened, which was reported to council and council stopped it, stopped the work, although they didn't penalise the company, we know from one of the residents who went to talk to those workers, the workers didn't have any safety equipment, they didn't know what they were dealing with and some of them became quite woozy and had to go home. The trouble is we don't have documented evidence of date, time, company name, etc. of that illegal work. Well, you're saying you don't think you're going to get what you need at VCAT. It's four days. What's going to happen over four days? That's a long time for a case to go for, isn't it? 
It is a long time, and I think the reason it's uh, a long case is because, I think long by VCAT standards, is because other parties have got involved. So there's the developer and the Moreland Council, and the Moreland Council is armed with a unanimous rejection from the council, um, so the council officers who argue the case will have that. But then also the EPA has got involved, Melbourne Water has got involved, and also the Western Region Environment Centre with Harry Van Morst is also a party to the case because they've been involved in decades of campaigning around toxic sites. Toxic Free Faulkner is now a party to the case. We had to really fight to be heard as an organisation in the case. They initially excluded Toxic Free Faulkner, so, but anyway, we've been added now as a party to the case. We believe, but we won't know until the case starts, we believe that the EPA recognises now that the original environmental audit, which everyone is has been relying on to say that the site is safe as houses was absolutely not to today's standards and doesn't meet the standards of various chemical chemicals, contaminating sites that exist today. There are new standards were introduced around 1999-2000 and it absolutely doesn't meet those standards. But also the original audit, which you know we've you know we've been questioning. It only did a, I think even for those times it was problematic because what they did is there are various tests across the site, some which showed low contamination, some which showed sky-high contamination. And what they did is they just averaged, averaged out those results across the site, which I think really disguises the level of toxicity on the site when you average out the, the toxicity across the site. And that's what they did to um, determine that it was a low risk and suitable for light industrial use. How much confidence do you have in the EPA at the moment? Well, we don't have a lot of confidence because at the beginning of this process, the EPA said the site was safe as houses. They came and briefed the councillors and said, you know, they'd removed all the contamination out of the site in... 1995 when it was partially cleaned up, although they didn't say partially cleaned up, um, they just said it was cleaned up. And they sort of provided the impression for gullible councillors that was like a swimming pool bottom at the uh, at underneath the site and every skerrick of contaminated soil had been removed. They really, the fact that they put such a utopian view of what had happened on the site to council basically gave the planners and a number of the councillors confidence that the site was cleaned up and really convinced the council initially that residents and myself were just fear-mongering and were hysterical over nothing and, and creating fear over nothing in the community. But over time, the community has done really great work, um, Toxic Free Faulkner, We've had to do all our own research without any help or assistance from council or other councillors. And, you know, we managed to basically put forward a strong enough case by the end of that process that the council did reject it. But, and we also managed 
to convince the EPA that the original audit was a problem. Now, we don't know what the EPA is going to say exactly, but in a lot of ways, I think the EPA has been a, a problem as well. They have not wanted to revisit this audit, so every environmental assessment of the site since 1995 has basically looked to see if there's any changes since the original audit and then given the site a tick of approval. So no one has been willing to question was that original audit good enough, and it wasn't. Is this time at VCAT going to set a precedent for other toxic sites around Melbourne? I'm not sure about that, but I think it might. This site is quite rare. I don't think there are many sites in Australia which have which are polluted with dioxin. Dioxin is the byproduct of the chemicals that make up Agent Orange. So, you know, that sort of is quite rare. And I think there's not a lot of experience with dealing with dioxin-contaminated sites in Australia. But I, I suspect it will create some level of precedent on the site. I think the fact that they, there is a potential for that original environmental audit to be overturned and a new audit ordered, I think that will be a precedent because there must be other sites in Melbourne or, or in Victoria where environmental assessments are done on sites where they go back to an original audit and the original auditor said it's okay but the original audit wasn't very good. You know, in that sense, it will, it, yeah, it could create a precedent. The fundraiser and film night is on Thursday, and I'm just wondering what's your estimate of the cost of four days in the VCAT? Well, it is thousands of dollars, <laughs> thousands of dollars. We do have a pro bono lawyer available, but if the case goes longer than the four days, we will have to pay the lawyer if it goes beyond those initial four days of the case. So that's why we have our fundraiser uh, for Toxic Free Faulkner next Thursday night on, on the 19th of April. This film is a New Zealand film. It's about a, very, a sort of similar case in a way. It's about a, a New Zealand community where workers started dying from cancer and there was an exceptionally high number of workers dying from cancer in this community and most of the workers worked in a sawmill and the sawmill treated pine timber with some sort of chemicals and a byproduct of the process was dioxin. So they were dying as a result of being contaminated by dioxin and the community had to fight to have, have this recognised and then fight to have the site cleaned up although I think one of the conclusions in the film is that it's very difficult and maybe impossible to actually clean up dioxin, which is why some of us are thinking that the outcome in Faulkner needs to be a very solid clay cap across the site and the whole site turned into a park rather than any kind of building there ever ever again. And, you know, the, the scientists who worked on that case, have offered some of their advice to Toxic Free Faulkner, which is great. The details? 
So it will be the 19th of April, which is this coming Thursday night, at 7.30, Faulkner Primary School, which is on the corner of McBride Street and Lawn Street, just down the road from the toxic side, but entry via McBride Street. The nearest train station is Faulkner Train Station. If you're coming by public transport, you get get off the train at Faulkner and just head straight up across Sydney Road and straight up Lawn Street. The costs I don't have right in front of me, actually. Um, I think it's $5 concession, $10 full price and $20 solidarity for memory. And, yeah, it's a fundraiser for Toxic Free Faulkner in case we have to pay for expert witnesses or if the case goes longer than four days. Okay, thanks, Sue. Thanks very much, Jan. And that was Sue Bolton. And I'll just reiterate, the film and fundraiser is this Thursday, the 19th of April at 7.30pm at the Faulkner Primary School, the corner of Lawn Street, and McBride Street in Faulkner. You enter from McBride Street and the cost is $15 waged, $5 concession and $20 solidarity and children are free. Ali MC presents a brand new photography exhibition, Shot on the Road, an intimate yet confronting view of the forgotten parts of the world. Shot on the Road will be opening on Saturday, May 5 at the Fitzroy Library from 2 to 4 p.m. Shot on the Road is part of the 2018 Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and is supported by the City of Yarra, Prism Imaging and Brio Books. A 3CR supporter. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah! That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Last week, Dr. Tim Anderson spoke about the situation in Syria and the ongoing lethal violence against unarmed Palestinians on the Gaza-Israel border. Today, Tim speaks about his recent visit to Timor-Leste. A very different country, Timor-Leste. You've recently been there, Tim. What are the oh, issues yeah, for the people there? Timor-Leste is a very different country. Although I was making the point the other day that some of the media distortions about Timor-Leste have been similar in, in sort of character. You know, there's been a real great reluctance to sort of engage in honest reporting, honest discussion about what had gone on in Timor-Leste when they had their political conflicts, for example. I'm, I'm reminded of it because in Syria, with the current misreporting of things, for example, the, the claim that the army is using chemical weapons again, completely, obviously false to anyone who has followed it at all. A similar sort of thing was going on a bit over a decade ago in Timor. I don't know if you remember, Chan, the reports that the then Prime Minister, Mari al who is today, again, Prime Minister, was killing dozens of his political opponents and burying them in shallow graves. That was reported in Australia. Some of the journalists that were involved in that went on to receive awards for their reporting. To my knowledge, they never apologised to Mari al when it became obvious that it was false. Here he is, um, Prime Minister again, but they're heading into another election in Timor because, unfortunately, the legacy of that conflict in 2006 means they're 
quite politically divided. They've managed to achieve some things, important things, since independence, but it's been when they've been united, precisely because they've been united, they've been able to, for example, prevail in the, the dispute over petroleum with Australia to a degree. And similarly with the, the domestic achievements in education and health, for example, that's only really been because they've been united on some of those important issues. And also the impact of Cuba helping the people. The Cuban program is an extraordinary one, but also the Timorese rose to it. You know, the students mm. were incredibly conscientious. They had and they have at the moment, again, a very good health minister in Dr. Rui Araujo, who's borrowing some of the Cuban ideas but adapting them to Timorese circumstances. You know, we call it Timorese social medicine because, for example, there's a process to go into all the remote areas and register every single person, have them on a database, and they will know about the health history of their whole population and can address it much more directly. Um, so the minister himself is going out into the mountains and walking and treating people and so on in, in that process. I discovered when I was there um, last week that next year, probably in December next year, with the graduation of the new graduation of doctors in December next year, they will complete the promise that Fidel Castro made to them back in 2005 of training a 1,000 doctors. The plan is at the moment to have 1,024 doctors should graduate or in total uh, December next year. A tremendous achievement for a little country that had maybe 50 or 60 doctors at independence. Are you saying that these students are still in Cuba? No, no, there, there are some in Cuba, but most of them in the last decade have been trained in Timor, in a faculty created by the Cubans under, under Cuban supervision, basically. So they're learning in Spanish and they're learning the Cuban curriculum, which is very focused on prevention and promotion of health and a strong focus on primary health. Those doctors are, are there practicing. I have a friend, for example, who's been working as a, an assistant surgeon for seven years there now. There are Cuban-trained Timorese doctors that have been working there for um, eight years now. What did you see of the education system? The education system is it's in an interesting situation. It's been slowly increasing, although the, the investment in education hasn't been as strong as it could be, but there's been some remarkable effects. I mean, one extraordinary thing is that the fertility rate, the number of babies women have, has dropped drastically, that, and that's, uh, that's mainly a result in any country of the education of women. The longer that girls stay in school, the more that they commit to their education, the more they get control of their fertility. It's always the major factor. In, in the case of Timor, you've got the fact that people feel more secure after the end of, of colonisation there, and that threat, that genocidal threat from the colonists has, has been withdrawn, so people feel more relaxed. But it's mainly to do with education. So, for example, 10 years ago, the average Timorese woman was having eight babies each, and now it's less than four. So it's dropped a lot in 10 years. And you can see that with the doctors in particular. I know a lot of the doctors, the first lot that graduated, of course, they controlled their fertility while they were studying medicine. And now when they came home, the ones that were in Cuba, they, they had babies when they came home, but they virtually all had two babies. So we're, we're looking at a, a sort of more of a model of educated Timorese women having two babies, which is a bit more, a bit closer to our own reality here, I suppose. And do you still have in Timor-Leste people leaving the, the city of and then going back into the agricultural areas? Well, no, but um, the thing is, the more that the education and health system and, in third place, the economic opportunities develop, the less strong 
the other processes, the urbanisation, people coming to the city, everywhere around the world in developing countries you have a process of people coming to the cities. It's more intense if there's nothing left for them in the country areas, but if there are some decent services, if there are some economic opportunities, they'll stay there basically. So Timor Since Independence has urbanised a lot. A lot of people have come to Delhi. There's a lot of unemployment in Delhi, for example, and there's a sort of a population hump going on now because Timor has always been known for a place with lots and lots of young people and they're, of course, coming through the school system now. But because women are having less babies, that's a sort of a going to drop off somewhat. But um, I was part of a, a, a group which wrote a human development report on Timor for this year and that was launched last week. That's one of the reasons I was up there. And, um, it, it, you know, there's this opportunity for them to... Uh, invest much more strongly in education sector than they had because this is a group of young people coming through that will that are entering the workforce now and um, some people say it's a it's a one-off opportunity and um, that's some of the internal discussion that's going on there at the moment and those in power moving away from reliance on oil gas well they have to don't they they've, mm. they've had a terrible dependence on on oil and gas money which came in about a decade ago and it's diminishing now already the budgets are contracting now and they've got this political division so they've got a big problem they've got the shrinking budget and they've got political division which makes it difficult to follow through on on particular policies but there was no way around that really the only thing was um, would they make very wise decisions on investing that oil money when they had it and uh, in my mind there was a lot lacking in in the wisdom of, of how they used that money it was thrown around it happens in every country that has dependence on oil doesn't it there's still some oil and gas reserves to be exploited and it, to my mind the patient on the part of the Timorese is a good thing because it's a problem of getting a lot of money all of a sudden uh, very few people manage it very well and I don't think it's been managed very well in Timor but nevertheless there are these other good things going on at the same time and um, let's see do you believe the political decision will be settled with the elections in May unfortunately I don't because I think there's some quite entrenched political divisions now. A fair amount of it has to do with the, the former resistance leader, Shanana Gusmao, who was simply intolerant of a Fretland government being back in power last year. But Fretland only has a slight edge there. Now the opposition, which has coalesced around Shanana Gusmao's group, there's three parties there now, they may have the advantage in this election. But it's going to be very close and there's going to be ongoing divisions, I believe. And it looked like in the last days of the government that Shnana Gudismao led, he, he drew in some of the, the senior Fretland people into government. It looked a bit like a government of national unity, which is a very good thing in a, in a little country. I know a lot of Western people say, oh, you, you need multi-party democracy and, a, and a, a regular opposition and you have to have a divided system. I think that's completely wrong for, for little countries. Little countries can't really function. They can't follow through with, with important programs if there are deep divisions and unfortunately this is one of the the downsides of, of the legacy in independent team or this political division and hopefully they'll get over it hopefully there'll be some they recognize that the leaders recognize it um, many of the leaders recognize it but um, those jealousies are one of these things that's going through a cycle and they haven't really got over it yet thanks to dr tim anderson who recently visited Timor-Leste and before that he was in Palestine earlier in February. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. It's coming up to five o'clock, another hour to go. 
I'll be speaking with Tasnim in a moment about Palestine. Also, I'll be speaking to Kate Lewis about movements by Morocco to cause trouble with Algeria. And then finally, is Mugabe really gone in Zimbabwe? 3CR, and you can hear us on your, if you've got an old analogue, it's it's 8.55am. If you're um, on digital, it's 3CR, or you could be streaming on 3cr.org.au, and you could be podcasting on 3cr.org.au. It's now into the third week of the protest camps on the Gaza-Israeli border and more Palestinians are being killed and injured by the day. This morning I spoke with Tasnin from the Palestinian community of Victoria and asked her first what she knows about the situation there on a daily basis. So the situation is that there's the great march of return that's going to be ongoing for in total of six weeks. So it began three weeks ago and it's commemorating the um, seven years of Nakba or exile when basically the equivalent of this is um, Israeli Independence Day when the State of Israel was established and Palestinians were um, exiled from their villages and the ethnic cleansing began. The mainstream media is trying to say that this is a, a Hamas demonstration, but that's not true, is it? Everyone is involved, or many people are involved, right from the very young to the very old. Um, yeah, so from the footage that's coming out of the Gaza borders, um, there are, you know, uh, hundreds of of people there, there are thousands of people um, at the Gaza border and they, the way they describe themselves is as refugees who have been exiled from now, what are now um, Israeli cities. So um, looking at, for example, um, across the border, just regular um, suburbs that Israeli um, settlers uh, live in, these people at the border, they are claiming that Obviously, um, they don't consider themselves to be Gazan residents. They consider them, most of them, consider themselves to be refugees in Gaza. And so this is why it's called the Great March of Return. It's evoking the right of return that Palestinians believe they have, that one day they'll return to those taken land. And that's shown too by the population of Gaza, isn't it, that 70 years ago there were, there was very, very sparsely occupied but all the, the population was the refugees from other parts of Palestine. Um, yeah exactly I mean this is like, like historically documented that there was a huge influx of people due to the exile who moved to Gaza and then many of the areas within the Gaza Strip are still called refugee camps and, they, uh, and when we see the reporting of journalists coming out of Gaza, it's often like reporting from this and, this and so refugee camp. And so the people who live in Gaza still consider themselves as refugees. And I think that's really important to, you know, when we are commenting on the issue, to consider the way that people there identify, because it uh, comes down to their sense of belonging and their sense of home. The way the Israelis are attacking the Palestinian people is it, are they targeting mainly young people or journalists? Well, I guess 
that's a question that should be asked of um, you know the Israeli representatives. But what we are seeing is that it's quite indiscriminate of anyone who is at the border. And so we have seen journal- journalists who have been um, injured, and one journalist who was killed by the sniper shootings. You must be disappointed, but I suppose you've been disappointed many times before that the international media is virtually ignoring what's happening. Yeah, so this is quite consistent in reporting of the situation in Gaza, and this is what has helped the siege to remain ongoing because um, of lack of international pressure and media attention on the issue. What does the Palestinian community here in Australia do to try and highlight what is happening? So um, as a member of Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, as well as the action group Solidarity for Palestine, what we are trying to do at the moment is to protest in support of the Great March of Return because many of our families are also um, refugees from Palestine. Like both my parents were born in Palestine. My father was born in Gaza, but actually his family is from Miasa, which is now an you know, Israeli city on the, on the sea. And so we're trying to commemorate the seven years of Nakba as well and to, to try and change the discourse within Australia to bring this narrative that we have and to, to make it more mainstream and a more powerful truth within Australia because often, obviously, the Israeli narrative is the one that's dominant in the news and in a lot of the education and textbooks that Australians receive here. Are members of your family still living in either Gaza or the West Bank? Um, yes. Yeah. So um, we have a lot of family members who are living in Ramallah in the West Bank. That's from my mum's side and also in Gaza from my father's side. Are you in contact with them fairly regularly? Um, yes. Yeah, so one of my mum's brothers lives in uh, the West Bank. And so, yeah, we have regular contact with him. I have been told in recent times that the situation in West Bank is getting much worse. Yeah, so there's a lot of tension, um, as we saw with Mahid um, Tamimi and um, her family, as well as you know the regular checkpoints and the building of the separation wall. And so all of this is kind of uh, trying to normalise Israel on the ground, and that's what we see with the Trump Jerusalem embassy move. It's a signifier of the establishment of Israel as a permanent settler colony, not only within what is recognized as Israel at the moment, but also with expanding settlements so that um, even the other areas that are under Palestinian Authority and Gaza will be, you know, there are plans to expand within them. Are you having demonstrations every Friday here in Melbourne? So we had um, one demonstration in the second week, so we received a, a bit of media coverage for that one. It was so the Saturday after the second Friday. But the next demonstration we're having is to commemorate and seven years of Nakba, which would, the Nakba is on the 15th of May and our demonstration will be on the 19th of May on the Saturday. I'd imagine many people are fearful of what might happen on that day in Palestine. Um, yeah, of course, because as I said, the, the Trump 
uh, U.S. embassy move will happen on the same day or, you know, around the, the same week. So that's what he has declared as a form of complete loyalty to Israeli and the Zionist agenda. Okay, well, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Thank you for your time. And that was Tasnim from the Palestinian community here in Melbourne. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. On the line now is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and there is some disturbing news coming out of Morocco. Kate? Jan, yes. Since the beginning of April when the Security Council has started to consider the question of Western Sahara and whether to extend the mandate of MINURSO, its peace mission, then the Moroccans uh, immediately on the 1st of April sent a letter to the Security Council making various claims, including that the Polisario Front uh, had violated the ceasefire agreement of 1991. They have lumped together a number of different things which are rather different and completely obfuscated the question of what the buffer zone is on the eastern side of the berm or military wall that divides Western Sahara and separates the Moroccan-held part from the part held by the Polisario Front or the Sahrawi side. And... This is clearly specified. The buffer zone in the ceasefire agreement is five kilometres to the east of the, this berm. But the areas where the Polisario Front have had activities for over many years and over the entire period, really since 1991, are well away from that, and some of them up to 90 kilometres away. So this is complete sort of dust in the air to just make a fuss about something which people don't fully understand and they start getting worried. And what they have actually threatened is to invade and recover this part of their, what they see as their territory, which of course would be a complete violation of of, of the ceasefire and of everything that uh, is um, going on in the United Nations. What's been the reaction from the United Nations? Oh, well, the United Nations have clearly uh, have said that uh, there has been no violation of the ceasefire. They haven't, in so many words, said Morocco is wrong, but they have clearly said that there is nothing, no violations of the ceasefire depict, detected uh, by their mission, which has got much more uh, presence on the ground, I think, than probably... Moroccans have. There are 120,000 military people 
along the length of this wall, which is 2,700 kilometres long, but you know, they, are, they are stuck there. They don't see what happens 90 kilometres away. So, yes, anyway, it, it, as usual, it's a kind of storm in a teacup and a diversionary tactic from what should be happening, which is serious discussions about how to proceed and how to create a satisfactory solution uh, to uh, restore peace in this part of the world. Nevertheless, I suppose, though, that the Polisario Front can't ignore this. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. And, uh, however, their um, thing, uh, one commentator that I read said that they would not have said this if they didn't have the complicity of France and that, uh, that they wouldn't have threatened war. And the... Uh, Apparently, I think it was Macron himself, the president of France, has visited Algiers and has asked the Algerians not to react if the Moroccans invade the Sahadawi side of the wall. Well, the Algerians were having none of that. They have always staunchly said that they are not a party in this conflict. The two parties are the Polisario Front and the Moroccan government, but the Moroccans always want to try and implicate uh, Algeria. However, of course, Algeria is a friend. It does host the refugee camps, and it has always put forward the uh, you know, strongly held view that they should support this effort to, to, for self-determination just as they fought for their own independence and finally won of course, which is partly why their relations with France aren't as warm as they might be. And as you said, this could be a smokescreen for the starting of the UN peace negotiations later in the month? Oh, yes, exactly. And uh, there's a number of different uh, hypotheses about what, it, what might be going on. Uh, it has also been said that Morocco is probably looking at what Turkey's been doing in relation to the Kurds and getting away with it, and they have recovered what they, you know, stopped what they thought was a dangerous development where the Kurds were actually gaining some ground and getting a bit of land for themselves. And I think they were kind of hoping, on the one hand, they might be able to do this without too much attention or let alone disapproval of the the world the rest of the world on the other hand if they create if it does turn into a a new trouble spot that will also serve various purposes in in uh, just diverting attention from uh, Syria and allowing some of their friends to go and do what they want to do in Syria which I don't know whether any of this is true but you know it's just a, a one of the ideas that is being floated. So, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because, as I say, what they really should be doing is cooperating with the United Nations uh, special envoy, a personal envoy of the Secretary General, Horst Köhler, in in setting up talks about providing for the self-determination of Western Sahara. Where do these talks take place? I think that would have to be determined in... James Baker got 
different venues in different countries. He got a session in Portugal, a session in London, different things. After that, Christopher Ross organized talks. Or was it Christopher Ross? Anyway, there were talks organized in a place called Manhattan. I think that's right, near New York. I'm not quite sure what it's like, but I think it is a sort of conference center out of the, uh, away from the city itself, uh, where they could meet and, and focus on what they were supposed to be doing. I don't think a venue has been mentioned yet. They haven't got to those sort of things. And, and as is the same comment I do in a different part of this article, which was in French, and it's on the ARSO site, ARSO.org, in the opinion part, uh, what is happening in Western Sahara. He says, you know, they're trying to make getting to having talks as the sort of exercise rather than what is going to go on in the talks and where and all the practicalities. They're just trying to make it an end in itself to get talks, which isn't the point. The point that talks are instrumental to getting a solution. Meanwhile, there are talks pending about the extension of the peace talks. Uh, yes, the mission for the referendum in Western Sahara, known as MINURSO, is just mandated to finish at the end of April. And so I think it's in about a week's time on the 25th of April, they will be deciding whether to extend that mandate and how, for how long. Usually they extend it for a year. Uh, very occasionally, if things are pretty difficult, they shorten it to, to six months. So, so we'll see, wait and see. Well, what it, I think it's pretty likely that they will extend it. It's, it, but one perhaps can raise the question of, given this threat of war, if they will do it only in six months, give it only six months or give it the full year. And what's happening with... Um trade agreements with Morocco and using Western Saharan produce? Yes, well, there was um, been two decisions, really, in the uh, European Court of, of, uh, of Justice, uh, and both of them have said very clearly that any negotiations that the European Union makes with Morocco, which, of course, they're very free to do, can only refer to goods produced in Morocco and cannot ex include any produce coming from Western Sahara or in the latest one, the coast of Western Sahara because that then applies to the fisheries. That, that has been very clearly stated but sadly and, and, and really quite a scandal that the European Council will disregard its own Court of Justice, which is the highest court in Europe, that they have said, well, you know, we all go on and keep talking. And some of them say that the peace settlement in Western Sahara would be a prerequisite of actually implementing such an agreement. But uh, I'm not sure if, if all of them agree with that. I think Morocco will be very happy to have managed to persuade the European Council to make this decision and it's, it's pretty worrying for those of us who have been helping the Sahrawis campaign 
uh, on this question that even Sweden, which is one of their friends, abstained. It didn't actually vote in favour, but it also didn't vote against it. Abstained on this vote. A lot of pressure on the council. Well, yes, and you have no doubt a lot of pressure on the council. But given that situation, the Sahrawi side have said that they have no choice but to go to court again and to challenge this decision and to appeal. So I don't know quite how and when that will happen, but hopefully it will at least delay the negotiations. There was a major plane crash in Algeria just a week or so ago involving Western Saharans. Yes, it was really horrible because it came just sort of almost immediately after they had, and perhaps even before they, or about the same day, they were burying one of their most important diplomats, Ahmed Bukhari, and then this plane came down uh, on take, uh, after takeoff. A wing caught fire, is one of the reports I've read. It seems the pilot tried to crash land, but he didn't succeed in saving lives, and 257 people died, which is the biggest air crash since the M17 was gunned down in the Ukraine. It's a major catastrophe, and for Algeria, it's a military aircraft, and a lot of the people on board were members of the... Algerian military and their families, but there were also 30 Sahrawis on board. Do many Sahrawis actually go to Algeria for medical treatment? Oh, yes. Well, they have got hospitals for certain, but only, only for a limited range of conditions. Some certain things are dealt with by visiting doctors coming and do the camps, but the... Um, Spanish, who supply a lot of those doctors, have been in having hard times as well in their austerity days, and they haven't always been able to get the funds together. In particular, there's an eye clinic that I know goes once a year to do um, eye surgery and and that sort of thing. They have they've been very restricted recently. So it may be due to that, or it may just be that standardly it would be one of those conditions that can't be dealt with in the camps. Talk a little about Ahmed Bukhari. Ahmed Bukhari, I met him when I went to uh, New York to the United Nations. He was a very charming man. He was also, I think, pretty effective in what he was doing there, and he will be greatly missed. He spent, I think, most of his career there in New York, and so he got to know the whole United Nations system very well. He got to know the different national missions there well, and he would be going the rounds talking to people in different, you know, representing the different countries as well as talking to United Nations officials. So... uh, Yes, at the moment his uh, job is being filled by Mulud Saeed, who was the representative in Washington, and some people may remember came to Melbourne in 2015 to attend the conference that also organised on natural resources. 
I'd imagine too that the situation in the desert camps is um, deteriorating by the day. Well, yes, I mean, these two, they had seven days of national mourning about Bukhari, and now they've got another seven days of national mourning for the loss of the people who um, died in the, in the crash. And I haven't heard a lot of detail about it, but as we implied, there were, a lot of people were returning home from medical treatment, and there were a few Sahrawi diplomats or officials but also shortages of just about everything in the camps. Oh, there's a lot of shortages, exactly, and uh, a, lot, and a certain amount of disquiet too. I mean, there are some young people who would like to go to war, actually, to, because they are so fed up with the stalemate that is existing in the international negotiations, and uh, and so I think if if there is this question of going to war and unfortunately there will be people who want to do it and I don't know what will happen but uh, one thing that will certainly happen is there will be loss of life but they really don't need to lose any more lives enough happening just by natural causes if you like or accidents like the well and the people who die from ma- uh, landmine accidents and in the mind area this buffer zone I might say nobody would do anything in the buffer zone because most of it is a minefield so it, it's quite um, preposterous to suggest that this Polisario might have been holding meetings of their government or international celebrations <laughs> within the actual buffer zone Just finally Kate there is a concert tomorrow night and maybe people can still get there I should think they could, yes. It's uh, an interesting group of people brought together. Well, I say people, they actually, the group, I think there's other things happening in this concert, but the group that I was uh, mentioning were brought together by an organisation called In Place of War. And this fits in very well with the Sahrawi general theme of not going to war and trying to find non-violent means for settling dis- international disputes. So uh, the group called in, in Place of War originates from Manchester and they have created this women's band, women, all women band called Girl, G-Triple-R-L. And they're performing uh, at the Curtain Pub in Ligon Street, Carlton, at 7.30 on Wednesday, the 18th of April. And where do these women come from? Oh, a whole variety of countries. This is, yeah, this is what's quite amazing, really. From Ghana, from Zimbabwe, Brazil, South Africa, Bangladesh, Venezuela, and from the UK. So it's uh, quite an achievement to have brought them all together. Just need one of your Sahrawi artists put in there too. Exactly. Well, we, I mean, one of them's a, uh, a rapper, and, and there are rappers bo- on both sides of the wall, both in the Moroccan part and in the camps. So, yes, we could supply a, a rapper if they would only, uh, if we could only organise it. Yes, that would be great. Although I, I, I think the, the rappers that... No, there is a woman rapper, I think. 
I have a feeling. They, uh, they, they, to qualify for this particular band, I think you do have to be a woman. But um, certainly one of the rappers is, 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 is a young man. So it'll be good. It'll be very, very interesting. So, uh, so come along to the Curtain at 7.30 on Wednesday the 18th. Thanks, Kate. Right. And that is tomorrow night, Wednesday the 18th at 7.30 at the John Curtain, which is in Ligon Street, just up from Victoria Street. And that was Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Mugabe has gone from power in Zimbabwe in what has been described as a soft coup. But has he really gone? Or is he still pulling the strings from his mansion? Human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy has had a long association with the democracy movement in Zimbabwe. And when we spoke, I began with the Zimbabwe Liberation War, the guerrilla war from 1966 to 1979, and asked him if this was the starting point of the black nationalist movements attempting to end white minority rule. I'm not sure of the exact dates, but I think that's close to it. You know, there was a lot of agitation in uh, former Rhodesia from the 1950s based around what was then called the the African National Congress of, uh, I think, of Rhodesia. Then uh, the trade union movement led by Joshua and Como. But by the 1960s, especially after the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, the level of violence, you know, in repressing this movement was, you know, extreme and launching an armed struggle was, again, like an echo of what had happened already in South Africa. Went on for a long time, that liberation struggle, didn't it? Till 1979, yeah, so we're looking at roughly uh, 14 years. Where did the people get their support from? Largely, it was uh, indigenous. Before the African Union, this called the Organisation of African Unity. So the independent countries in Africa, which you know, only began getting independence at the end of the 1950s, and, and through the 1960s there were more and more former colonies, they certainly uh, wanted to support the anti-apartheid struggles in southern Africa and end colonialism everywhere. So they had a liberation committee, the OAU, and they, I think, received some financial support from both the Soviet Union and China and channeled weapons and money to organise groups who were willing to fight. So uh, there's a pattern of this in, in the different colonised areas of Africa in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, in Zimbabwe... Initially, it was the ZAPU that uh, was the sort of target of giving this military training and weapons and so on, and people could go to Tanzania, say, and and do training and then go back into Rhodesia. Uh, And then not long after, there was ZANU was formed, and they uh, also received the same kind of support from the OAU. And what was the final store that broke the back of the, the government of Rhodesia? It's complicated because the United States entered the uh, the scene in 1974, so right near the end of the Nixon government, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, launched a, a fairly comprehensive intervention into Southern African politics. You know, but you have to realise that all of this area of Africa was really run by European powers. 
especially the British, but also uh, France and uh, Portugal were very important. The Kissinger intervention was sort of coming in over the top, so it's hard, it's hard to convey it in a short interview, but I think that from the, his point of view, he was fighting a global war against communism and he wanted to head off a revolution uh, in Africa, in southern Africa in particular, and especially in South Africa. But he had a sort of a step, series of steps in his plan and ending the conflict in Rhodesia was one of the main targets of his intervention. And he, he did go personally to Tanzania and uh, Zambia and met all the front, you know, the frontline state leaders and uh, discussed with them what to do. And then he convinced South Africa to uh, shut down uh, Ian Smith's regime. And really that was the crucial thing that happened. South Africa cut off vital economic support and Smith had no option but to negotiate and that's where everyone ended up at Lancaster House in, in the UK and uh, came to an, a settlement. Mugabe wasn't the only leader at that time though, was he? Joshua Nkomo was uh, a very important leader as well and, and he had a different political structure in Zapu and they had a separate force as well called Zipra. So we're talking here about an alliance and broadly speaking you could say that uh, ZAPU was aligned with the Soviet Union and uh, ZANU was aligned with China. Of course there was a Soviet, you know, the China-Soviet split had already happened by the time the Liberation War was launched in what's now Zimbabwe. What happened to Joshua Nkomo? Well, he played a crucial role at Lancaster House and uh, what was decided was that they would the ZANU and ZAPU would work together and they formed a coalition called ZANU-PF. They contested the elections in 19... They actually held in 1980. They had a resounding victory uh, over the remnants of the Smith regime and candidate Damodingi Satoli, who was aligned at that time with the, the, the Smith group. They had a big victory and uh, therefore they both took up roles in government in 1980. But in, in 1981, Mugabe's side launched uh, what's called a Gukuruhundi, uh, a war against uh, Zapu. So from almost the start, you know, the ZANU-PF uh, alliance didn't really work and um, Mugabe forces really, not all of them obviously, but, but an intern in a sort of circle decided to really annihilate Zapu. And this went on, you know, until about 1988. So it's a lot of a lot of years of uh, violence inside the country, which was happening, you know, when the world was really looking at what was going on in South Africa much more. So uh, it was sort of under the radar, and you, know, you can speculate on the reasons why the British especially and uh, the US to some extent chose to ignore, you know, an, uh, you know, really a crime against humanity on Mugabe's part. How did the economy and the country survive with that brutality going on and so many, so many people dying. There was a, uh, re uh, what do you call it, a, a heritage of industrial development and there was a strong agricultural sector which remained in the 1980s. And, and Smith had a sort of a, you'd call it a, a state-led uh, economy because it was a war economy. 
in the six in the sixties and seventies. So, you know, the government had a powerful role, and Mugabe's initial uh, approach to the economy was to massively expand education and health services, and some uh, agricultural services, especially water supplies, throughout the country instead of more focused on a white economy. So there was a, I think you could say, a boom of some sorts going on, even even though in some regions of the country there was really a, a, a terrible civil conflict and uh, probably a bit unfair to even call it that, a real repression by the state against one uh, political group. I think uh, we have to go to 1989-1990 to see a real change in the economic circumstances of the country, which was very important. What happened to the white economy? Well, it was taken over by the government of uh, Robert Mugabe, who was initially the Prime Minister and then later the President as he, he changed things around. You could say that the economy, that is the, they called them parastatals or the public sector companies, worked pretty well in the 1980s, that there was a really popular expansion of education and Zimbabwe was widely respected as a, a country which achieved high levels of literacy and uh, educational standards in, in the whole African continent. You know, so there were, there were sort of good marks for the Mugabe government at one level. But in 1989, there was this collapse uh, that is, uh, Joshua and Como and Zapu had to just surrender to stop the killings going on. So they were completely absorbed into the ZANU-PF political structure and you had a sort of one-party state absolutely openly asserted by Mugabe, whereas before he'd pretended that he was into coalition politics and multi-party politics. So briefly we have the one-party state and then the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, you know, the, the first the Berlin Wall went down. And so in 1990, Mugabe had this sort of turn to the IMF World Bank and introdu introduced a structural adjustment program. They actually called it the Economic Structural Adjustment Policy, ESAP. And uh, this was a, a massive privatisation and liberalisation of uh, trade as well. So... Initially, there was this sort of flood of imports and uh, much more consumer goods available. But within a very short time, there was, you know, rapidly rising unemployment and uh, wages falling, uh, inflation taking off, and, uh, you know, a big divide opened up in the black uh, majority as well as between what it was before the white and the black communities. So there was, you know, a huge social problem and you could say that from this point on, there was continuing economic difficulties and, and step-downs or declines taking place, and then in intensifying political opposition to uh, Mugabe, which he tended to be able to just eliminate one after the other, the challenges which came up, until 1997, 8, 9, that period, when the trade union movement separated itself from ZANU-PF and independently launched strikes over wages and job security and against privatisations. Eventually they launched a political party, MDC, in 1999 and in 2000 that political movement 
first of all defeated a, a new constitutional referendum put forward by Mugabe and then really won the elections in 2000 and 2002 and really, really scared uh, Mugabe and he launched a really big, violent attack on different sectors of the community. We, we saw it as uh, the violent occupation of white commercial farms and that certainly had a devastating economic impact and it was posed as an anti-white farmer thing so therefore it was a racially posed and uh, very very uh, div divisive underneath the white commercial farmers though there was about half a million african farm laborers and th these were perceived by mugabe i think correctly as mdc voters so they were really just eliminated from the body politic so a huge number of people were voting in, in that first couple of elections and then they they were not voting anymore. There was a massive collapse of the agricultural sector, agricultural exports, and uh, really from, from then on it was a sort of a runaway collapse of the economy. So up to that time, the whites continued to own all the farms? The commercial farm mm. sector, largely. But, uh, yeah, so going back to 1980, Mugabe began his government with a stretching out the arm of uh, friendship and... Uh, reconciliation to the white community because he needed them to continue their economic role. But, you know, a very large number of whites left Rhodesia and left Zimbabwe at that point. So those who remained was about only about 40,000 people. They were certainly no political threat to a government where the population was somewhere around 10 million. There were about 4,000 white commercial farms uh, operating and they were very important economically. There were black commercial farmers but they were very small in number compared to the whites. Yeah, I, I visited myself in the year 2000 and met some of the, you know, the workers uh, from these commercial farms. They had a trade union and so on. They were firmly supporting MDC and uh, they certainly didn't see their employers as the enemy. It would be a bit, bit of a mistake from our perspective here in 2018 to look back at even at 1980 and say that the main struggle was still against these entrenched white economic interests. Although it's clear that land reform had to happen and there was a land reform program all through the 1980s and 90s, mainly financed by Britain, which was based on seller-willing buyer. There was quite a lot of land transferred and there were also white people buying farms under those terms so that they weren't, you know, the historic holders of the land necessarily, the farmers in 2000 who were violently invaded and uh, booted off the, the farms. Yeah, I think it's worth sort of softening all those images and, and realising that what was going on in 2000, 2000, and 10, even up, even up till last year, there were still residual farms being invaded and, and grabbed. What was really going on was a political power grab uh, and a punitive uh, operation by Mugabe against his political threats, not against people because they were white or because they were black, and both black and white were really terribly victimised in, in that program of uh, seizing those farms. What happened to Smith and his cohorts? Oh, Smith kept a farm. <laughs> Smith retired and uh, he, he died only a few years ago. 
He was uh, often making rather ironic comments uh, in the media about uh, how bad things were under Mugabe. But uh, he was uh, left to be quite comfortable. No being put on trial uh, for, you know, some of the massive atrocities that happened in the Liberation War. Nothing like that. You are tuned to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name's Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy about Zimbabwe and the future of Zimbabwe without Mugabe as president. What happened to the MDC? Unfortunately, uh, the MDC had some splits. First serious one was in 2005, so six years after it was launched and uh, the main body of MDC led by Morgan Changirai really just continued and the ones who broke away were really rather residual and in the, the 2008 and 2013 elections they, they virtually disappeared from the parliament. But uh, after the t- 2013 elections where MDC was really sort of vanquished, I think in one of the most uh, gross uh, election cheating operations the world has ever seen, uh, they didn't really cope with that. And so after, there was huge uh, frustration from different people, different leaders uh, with Morgan Changarai, and uh, he also didn't manage any sort of uh, dialogue about this and tended to more authoritarian uh, responses himself. Uh, despite all, and, and so there was, uh, you know, other significant groups left MDC, including the people that I work with the closest. I think a bit tragic, but I think underneath it, you can see that uh, MDC was like a a national salvation front or a a coalition of everybody who, you know, was desperate to to get past the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe and uh, ZANU-PF. And so it was a very eclectic group of people. And Morgan Changarai, you know, you'd have to give him 100 out of 100 for courage and perseverance because he, he was nearly killed several times. He, he didn't give up. His wife was killed. He still didn't give up. He suffered a lot. But uh, he, he was leading people of radically different outlooks. As a trade unionist, he was looked down upon by quite a few of them as, you know, relatively vulgar, uneducated, and uh, a bit of an embarrassment. So there's a lot of class prejudice and snobbishness you know, directed against him, even inside MDC. He had also his trade union base, but uh, he had a radical women and students, but he also had quite conservative finance people and uh, industry people, retail sector and farmers, also all involved. Here we are in Australia, can you imagine that the farming community uniting with the ACTU and then trying to figure out the tactics. Will we have a mass rally? Will we um, sit in the highways and block them? Will we have strikes? So Morgan Changarai really had a problem that he, he could never get much consensus about what is the tactic to use to pressurise the government for change apart from standing in elections. So there was sometimes years went past with virtually no action 
they were just waiting around for the next election, even though the economy was in free fall and people were so desperate. There was huge emigration. There was a lot of political violence, yet there was virtually no protest rallies happening, even at that level of just a protest rally. I think Morgan decided to keep MDC together as much as possible and therefore he didn't confront these sort of impossible divisions in his own ranks, in his own leadership team. He then became the butt, you know, he, he's the one responsible for the failure to change. Uh, he had to live with all that. You know, I know he made lots of mistakes, really, and especially towards the end of his uh, time. But that's, I think, the underlying reason why all those difficulties happened. Tell us about Sekai Holland and her connections with Australia. Sekai Holland came to Australia to finish her high school, I think 1964, it's a very long time ago. She was from a family where I think her father was one of the first journalists, black journalists and black editors, came from a very respected family. She completed her high school, I think, in Melbourne, and then she went to ANU, and then she moved to Sydney and finished some more studies and uh, in both Canberra and Sydney, she she was a, quite a prominent activist in the anti-apartheid movement and also organised directly actions about the liberation of Zimbabwe. And uh, she was a official representative of ZANU in Australia and the Pacific until conflicts in ZANU meant that she was shoved aside in the 1970s for a while. But yeah, she played a very prominent role in, in those particular movements, but because of the nature of the progressive struggles in Australia in those times, you know, she had a lot of interaction with the Aboriginal people, with the trade union movement, and for a while she was actually a member of the Builders Labourers Federation under Jack Mundy and Joe Owens and Bob Pringle. You know, she had a lot of connections with you know, a wide range of people in the left, in the Labour Party, in the churches, and so on. And when she got a chance, she went back to Zimbabwe in 1980 for the rebuilding of the country, and she never came back to Australia until 1999, when she did turn up to ask us to form a group to support MDC. Her role in Zimbabwe now? The leader of a thing called the National Peace Trust, and she's an initiator of quite a few different initiatives at the community level about politics. The Peace Trust itself is a, is a coalition or a grouping of uh, community-based organisations and uh, she's got a strong commitment to uh, lifting the role of women in politics in Zimbabwe. So she, she's focusing on those things. But she was uh, a founder of MDC. She was on the, the national executive for many years, very prominent in trying to develop the tactics, you know, to pressurise Mugabe, which led to the breakthrough in 2008. Unfortunately, you know, it's really very tragic what happens in these things, but uh, they were pushing for these, uh, they call them prayer rallies, you know, like day of prayer, and that was the way to have a rally which the Conservatives in, in MDC would, would go along with. But, of course, Mugabe could see that these were really just political opposition to him, and they were big. So um, he cracked down on one in uh, March 2007, and uh, all of the uh, MDC leaders who turned up were arrested and taken aside. And uh, in, a, in a big group, they were all bashed for hours. And uh, Sekai was one of them. And, you know, you could say that Mugabe didn't care if they were killed. She herself had 
seven or eight broken ribs, broken legs, broken arm, and you know, a huge number of lacerations from being whipped, stomped on. And she was lucky to to be alive. And Morgan Chungarai had a, you know huge gashes in his head that were visible to people, and they were held in in uh, police stations after being tortured like that. Eventually. You know, after some days, got to go to hospitals and get some medical attention, and uh, it took a little time, a couple of weeks. But uh, between all of us, including the Australian uh, embassy in in uh, Zimbabwe, you know, we got Sekai to Sydney, and she had her bones repaired and uh, set. And then the trauma recovery thing happened with the Starts uh, Institution in Fairfield, and and she had a remarkable recovery. She's obviously a very resilient character. It shocked everyone, though, though, as uh, the aftermath of that bashing, especially the bashing of her, resounded all through Africa, and the African Union reacted. So Mugabe was forced to hold elections in 2008. The discussions were going on about who would stand and everything, and she said, oh, well, I'm going to stand. And she was here in Sydney. She got on a plane, I think, at the end of uh, February or early March, and flew back and got elected to the Senate in uh, an electorate north of Harare, on the northern outskirts of Harare, and uh, played a really important role in campaigning, and MDC won so many seats. And uh, unfortunately, the violence that happened after that election, I should say that Morgan Chungarai outvoted uh, Mugabe in the presidential poll. They cheated a lot, but they couldn't cheat enough. <laughs> anyway, they found a way to deny him victory, and uh, they said there had to be a runoff election, and the, and the violence in that period was so severe that Chungarai, I think rightly, cancelled. He just withdrew from the race, said too many people are being killed, and technically, you know, Mugabe won, but again, the African Union insisted that there had to be some kind of change, and that's when the Government of National Unity was formed in February 2009, in the government, Sekai Holland became a minister for national healing and reconciliation. So she she played a role until 2013 in the government. And unfortunately, after that, the, the massive disaster in 2013's election, she pushed hard for a change in MDC. And they had a sort of ginger group in the party called Renewal MDC. But there was a, a manoeuvre done complicated to go into but uh, a dirty game happened and, and all of the people who were involved with renewal were actually expelled from MDC and then expelled from the parliament she lost her role at that level and you know she's now I think 76 years old she already said back then in 2013-14 that she wouldn't go back into formal politics so she's working now as a leader of this community level development of uh, political relationships. It's hard to know where this is all, all going to lead, but it's true that every different political grouping comes to her house to talk to her about what they're doing and what they could do and what they think, what she might think is the best thing to do. So she's still playing, I think, a very important role in a very, very difficult situation. You can see now that Mugabe is removed and Manangagwa is the president, he's a far different challenge for the democratic movement. And the democratic movement is, is very fragmented. 
and struggling to find a way to get a uh, coherent campaign for elections which will happen just in a few months' time. It doesn't look too good for Zimbabwe in the sense that it's in a catastrophic economic collapse. It needs the international community to help it out of that, but the international community will not help until they're assured that there's really a return to the rule of law and that there will be a genuine government that's responsive to its people, not a dictatorship run by a bunch of thugs and plunderers. Anagag was maybe uh, presenting very well as a, a reforming character, but if you look at his cabinet, it's, it's full of people who are rightly called thugs and plunderers. How will the people of Zimbabwe get out of this situation? Everyone's got, got to work at that, and I think uh, Mrs Holland is really you know, putting her mind to that. Mugabe's wife is still there, facing possible corruption charges, smuggling. Yeah, let's hope so. You know, it was obvious before that she was quite uh, unhinged and uh, really foolish. She was like a cat's paw. You know, Mugabe, I think, frail and feeble as he is physically. He's still, uh, I think, a very powerful force. And probably Manangagwa felt he, he couldn't really arrest him and uh, put him on trial for reasons to do with, you know, what's going on inside Banu PF. But that means that Mugabe and Grace are still on the loose, really. He might have to stay in his palace, but he's got lots of money. He can really be a player in the current political situation, and he, and he is. He's already helped launch a new, a new political party to split ZANU-PF. It's called the National Patriotic Front. I would say he's, he's got a good chance of undoing Manangagwa, so we'll see even a further splintering of the political forces in the country. The people deserve better. Oh, yes. The people are sort of tearing their hair out, you know, looking at this and thinking, how can we get somebody sensible to bring people together around something believable, believable to them and then believable to the international community. And right now, no one's found it. They're running out of time. We could really see, uh, you know, the removal of Mugabe as a bit of a false dawn if there's no substantive change through this election process. And the election will take place in, in August, they say. Constitutionally, I think that's the last month in which it could take place. After that, we, we may see you know, even more heightened uh, political conflict with some potential for the security forces to be fractured. You know, because Mugabe is meddling and, and he's got money, the uh, unity of the military you know, in removing him may, may not last. That's, that's a problem. There, there was obviously a problem with the police being closer to Mugabe and there's been quite a purge of the senior ranks of the police by Manangagwa since uh, December. Perhaps the police uh, will now not feature in uh, political turmoil, but uh, I think the military, still a question mark in my mind about uh, where they'll end up after an election. And thanks to Peter Murphy for that story about... Mugabe and Zimbabwe. I'll be finishing in a couple of minutes, but um, Tambalo will be in then. I'll just give you another announcement about Toxic Free Faulkner Film Night on Thursday. And I won't be in next Tuesday, but I'll be in 
in two weeks' time. So I'll say goodbye now and just a couple of messages. Bye for now.